From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Andy. Hello, Marion. Hello, hello. We are back again with the Lowlander, picking out our favourite articles and news updates from the regular service newsletter that was sent out to the men of the 52nd Lowland Division between the 19th and 25th of February in 1945. Well, it's relatively quiet for the jocks this week, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, There's lots of stuff going on in the Second World War this week. Uh, Could you run us through what's happening? Yes, there's all sorts. Uh, The British have taken Ramri Island which is just off Burma. Um, the Canadian 3rd Division has occupied Moyland. Uh, we've got Operation Grenade. That's Simpson's 9th Army crossing the Ruhr. The Marines have raised the American flag on top of Mount Suribashi, um, Iwo Jima. And, of course, at the end of this week, Egypt and Syria declare war on Nazi Germany. More about that later. But shall we find out where the jocks are? It's actually fairly quiet. So last week we talked about the attack through the Broderbosch Woods, or Afferton Woods, Uh, And that came stuck really on the 18th of February. So this is from the 19th of February. They've dug in and around Afton Woods. That's two brigades, 155 and 157 Brigade. And really it's about patrolling, trying to locate the enemy, trying to identify whereabouts the Germans are in front of them. But there's no real big attacks or anything like that. One action of note, which everybody uh, comments on, is uh, this castle that we talked about last week that sticks out in the German line, the Castile-Bleisenbeck. That's being attacked repeatedly by typhoons and spitfires firing rockets at it to try and knock the Germans out of there. Um, the only other sort of other thing of note is 156 Brigade. They've moved over to Goch and they have relieved the 51st Highland Division, um, which had actually captured the town earlier on in the week. But really, it's quite quiet for the 52nd Lowland and they're just sitting there waiting for the Americans to push through on Operation Grenade, which should make things a lot easier for them. Okay, so we've got Highlanders and Lowlanders almost coming together. Just just um, for anybody who's catching up, whereabouts is Afferton? Because we launch into it, but whereabouts in Germany is Afferton? Well, Afferton is a Dutch village. It's actually a tiny village. I mean, we say Afferton like it's somebody somewhere you should know about. It's on the um, east bank of the River Mass, and it's just literally a mile or two from the German border. So it, it's a, it is in, in the Netherlands, not Germany? It is in the Netherlands, but then if you drift too far to the east, you'll end up in Germany before you know it. Um, and it's kind of uh, southwest of the Reichswald Forest. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's about, uh, about three or four miles from the city of Goch, which we're going to talk about later on. Brilliant. Well, let's get going. 19th of February 1945. The Dutch before and after. After enjoying their hospitality for several months under trying conditions, there are few of us who have not learnt to respect our Dutch hosts. But because they are quiet and reserved people, it's possible we don't fully appreciate what they have done for us in the past, nor what they're doing now. First, a story from the past. Earlier in the war, many an RAF crew crash-landed in southern Holland after a trip to Cologne or Berlin, 
found shelter in a Dutch farm and was eventually spirited away from under the very nose of the Bosch back to the UK. It was dangerous work. Discovery for the Dutch meant instant death. Apart from the dread of informers and the Gestapo, minor complications constantly cropped up, not the least of them being food. One farmer, who at the time had managed to shelter a score of RAF fugitives, found he could provide everything but milk. His entire supply, down to the last drop, had been commandeered by the Germans. To have held any back would have aroused suspicion. So he consulted the local veterinary surgeon. The vet was a shrewd man, and his eye twinkled as he remarked, But surely you told me one of your cows was sick and giving milk unfit for human consumption. I'll send a certificate to the German authorities telling them, After all, it would never do for the pure Orions to drink impure milk. And so this is what he did. For several days, the German garrison went on a short milk ration, while the RAF sucked royally and prepared their escape, until, meeting the farmer, the vet was informed, the sick cow you certified is now fully recovered. Isn't that great? That's a fantastic story. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, uh, the Lowland are, are big fans of the Netherlands. We've been a few times and it's we yeah. always have a great time. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean that when you read the accounts of uh, the Battle of Northwest Europe, everybody mentions about how great the Dutch are when they go there. They're thankful. In fact, when you go now, uh, you get the sense that they haven't forgotten at all. In fact, you know, street corners they have signs. They've got uh, uh, information boards. They've got loads of stuff. They really yeah. do respect yeah. um, what the Allies did. And I think um, I'd like to think the respect is is both ways, isn't it? Very much so. And I know this was um, quite a long article to start with. It does actually go on for another paragraph. I will just, just quickly go through it. For the present, the relationships with the Dutch. Recently, the arrangements made by the mobile bath unit for mending your socks caused quite a stir in a tiny Dutch village. Every family was hard at it during the night darning. Several turned out 30 pairs of socks in an evening and the whole village averaged 2,000 pairs a week. But some households weren't satisfied, and they weren't satisfied because they didn't get enough to do. They felt they were being deprived of a chance of helping the Allies. However, do not take this as an invitation to wear two holes in your socks where there was only one before. <laughs> is it is it really sad to say I know exactly where that mobile bath unit was set up? Yes! Okay, moving on. 19th of February, 1945. Good listening. Home services, Monday night at 8. Forces Radio, Sandy McPherson. AEF, The Comedy Caravan, featuring Schnozzle Durante. Twentieth of january nineteen forty five Goch taken by the Scots. The small German town of Goch, midway between the Rhine and the Mass, was entered by Scottish troops of the first Canadian Army on Sunday night. Goch is a town with a peacetime population of twelve thousand. It had been built into the Siegfried line defences and was a formidable strong point. One force of our men, forcing strong anti tank ditch, entered the town from the northeast at the same time as others entered from the southwest having there found a relatively weakly defended sector. 
The town is divided into two by the Little River Nears, and latest reports indicate that our forces have yet to make contact, but street fighting is taking place. On the east of the front, more gains have been made across the Goch Kalkar Road, but resistance is very heavy. On the right, near the mass, our men are temporarily held up by deep, flooded anti-tank ditches. That anti-tank ditch is where the 4th Battalion is. Okay. So you can ask me questions about that. Yes. So I think we should talk about the anti-tank ditches because on this page there is a map, isn't there? Oh, yeah. There is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, it takes up half the page. Let's just, just describe it. It takes up half the page and it's at the kind of scale where somebody's tried to draw in individual trees and yet we've got a distance of probably about 25 miles going across the page. Yeah. We've got Nijmegen top left. We've got Boxmere top, um, bottom left. On the right-hand side, we've got Marienbaum. Then we've got the Rhine running from top left to bottom right. And at the top right, we've got Isselberg. Okay, yeah. so we are talking about Goch mm-hmm. and anti-tank ditches. Now, whereabouts on this map will we find anti-tank ditches? Well, there is a large anti-tank ditch around Goch because it's part of the Siegfried line, but the one that jumps off the page is on the last paragraph that I read out where mm. it says that our men just next to the mass have been held up by flooded anti-tank ditches. Yeah, That is, of course, what we mentioned last week, the 4th Battalion of the King's Own Scottish Borders. Um, they launched their attack on the 18th, so a couple of days before this report. Uh, and they, as they broke out of Afferdon Woods, they entered the open ground. They had to cross a couple of anti-tank ditches, but were met with a, an extremely heavy hail of fire from the Germans who were across the other side of the anti-tank ditches in the woods to the south. And basically stopped the 52nd in their tracks uh, and they couldn't progress. And, and so the 52nd actually just dug in on that and in those woods. And those woods, they're, they're called the Broderbosch, aren't they? That's right, yeah. So it's, it, we, the, the Dutch call it the Broderbosch, um, but the Jocks, they called it Afferton Woods because it was a small village. In fact, on the map, it's got all the main towns of Operation Veritable, the Rhineland that you'd expect. So mm. as you mentioned, Gorch and Cleve and Rees and Zanton and all those places. It also mentions Afferton, and of course they've mentioned Afferton because that's where the 52nd are, but it really is only a few houses and it's not <laughs> yeah. very big at all. So they call it Afferton Woods, and you often hear, in fact, Peter White, who wrote with the jocks, he refers to it as Afferton Woods, Yeah, um, and that's how they, they knew it. But it's a large, and it's a it's a young woodland as well, so it's not... Mm. It's not big, fully grown trees like the Ricefold, which is a few miles to the north when you see the map. It's actually smaller trees, which were bushier, much harder to fight through. It yeah. really was quite a difficult place to operate. And, and this, this comes back to, and when we're looking at maps for certainly this area, I guess, and anything to the east of it, and certainly around this period, you'll find the Germans have labelled those nursery forests and forest developments um, quite quite accurately. But, the, but but there are differences in, in who's calling which bits of the landscape what on this sort of dutch german border yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean it's a it's actually a very very accurate map they've, they've obviously traced off something because this is really the the whole area of the rhineland yeah. and operation veritable and operation blockbuster which will be happening later on in the week very useful all right well let's Thanks. see what else is happening Twenty first of february 1945 the appeal of Betty Jones and the American soldier, Holton, against the sentences of death passed upon them was rejected yesterday. I feel like I should know who Betty Jones is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Betty Jones and Carl Hulten, um, who was a Swedish-born deserter from the US Army. He was stationed in the UK in 1944. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not a well-known 
incident, but it probably should be better known because it was mentioned by George Orwell in an essay he wrote called The Decline of English Murder. Um, He was analysing the kinds of murders depicted in popular media. Right. And why and why people like to read about them. So this was something known as the cleft chin murder, because um, the, 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 the final victim, George Edward Heath, who was a taxi driver, had a cleft chin. So let me tell you about Betty and Carl. So Carl was stationed in Britain and he had met Betty in a tea shop, as you might expect from a, mm-hmm. a, a young American soldier. They were attracted to each other from the start, but Betty had told Halton that she fantasised about being a stripper and dreamed of doing something exciting. She was only a young girl. girl. (laughs) She was an 18-year-old waitress. Okay, So they they kind of hit it off. In fact, they only knew each other for six days. Um, But during that time, Halton set out to try and impress young Betty Jones. They hitchhiked they drove around together and in trying to impress her she had said she wanted to do something exciting and he rose to the challenge and they picked up a hitchhiker robbed her threw her into a river to drown although she survived they knocked over a nurse who was cycling along a country lane this was just all for you know shits and giggles really horrible horrible scene and um, at the end of the six days they were out together and to impress Betty Jones, what Hulton did was he murdered um, a taxi driver, George Heath, near Staines in Middlesex. Robbed him. They stopped him and robbed him of eight pounds to start with, which they then spent at the at the at the dogs the next day. Um, and then after taking the taxi, um, he Hulton also stole an army truck. Then they eventually abandoned the truck. They were sort of running around it in in it together but what he didn't abandon was the eight pounds that he stole jones said that she wanted a fur coat hulton Mm -hmm. attacked a woman in the street and stride and tried to snatch the coat but the police saw what was happening and managed to apprehend hulton and, and and betty jones and that was the end of that he was caught and he tried to pass himself off as a lieutenant ricky allen Uh in the 501st parachute infantry regiment that didn't work. Um, Betty Jones and Hulton were charged with the murder of George Heath. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was only possible because of the Visiting Forces Act, where actually anybody in Britain was could be charged under UK law. Yeah. They were both found guilty of murdering Heath mm-hmm. and were sentenced to be hanged. Um, but while Hulton was... So that's what we get in the Lowlander, but while Hulton while Hulton was executed at Pentonville Prison in March, Betty Jones got a reprieve and was released in May 1954. This should probably be better known because there was a film about it called Chicago Joe and the Showgirl that was made in 1990. It's got Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, as um, as Carl Hulton and Patsy Kensit, I think, played the role of Betty Jones. But but it, it kind of should be better known because of George Orwell's essay, um, Decline of the English Murder. He mm. was trying to trying to work out what it was about these incidents that attracted people to you know be so fascinated by them. I, so we see we see it reported in the Lowlander, but it's one we should probably know more about. I wonder what. George Orwell would, would would make of the the mania for true crime podcasts because I think we've just turned into a true crime podcast. By the way, listen to that. that's a bit. I, 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 I never heard of that story at all. Um, that's yeah, exactly, isn't it? Twenty second of February, nineteen forty five. 
hitting a Nazi hideout. Nuremberg was once a showpiece of the Nazi party. It might well become the headquarters for the last Nazi stand in the mountains of southern Germany. It might if our air forces did not have other ideas. Yesterday, 900 fortresses with 700 fighters unloaded 11,000 high explosives and 300,000 incendiaries on this monument to German culture. The previous night, Lancasters again took the synthetic oil plant near Leipzig for their principal target. Outstanding. Of course, I mean, we, I instantly associate Nuremberg with Nuremberg trials, yeah. um, which, by the way, makes fascinating reading. I've got to say that the trial documents make fascinating reading, but it's important to remember that there was more to Nuremberg mm. than it being the, the seat of justice after the fact. Well, they, 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 the funny thing is when, when they say culture in this, they've written it in German with um, yeah. with quotation marks as a sort of nod to how important yeah, um, yeah. Nuremberg was. Of course, that's where Triumph of the Will was was, uh, was filmed. That's oh, yeah, where oh, the Nazis yeah. did all their their big uh, their, their sort of big rallies, rallies and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, so and of course they had no concept of that being the place where the trials would take place. Absolutely, absolutely. Twenty second of February, nineteen forty five. A word about whiskers. Some hitherto undivulged facts were revealed yesterday about the means taken by officers and men of all three services to camouflage their appearance. The war has evidently popularised moustaches and beards, the former inspired by the army, the latter by the navy. The RAF, being the junior service, has naturally turned to the army as an example and modelled its facial adornments on the military pattern. It boasts one legendary growth in gorgeous red, which, when fully extended, has a wink. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I'll, I'm nearly there. It boasts... <laughs> no, I can't. Yes, I can. It boasts one legendary growth in gorgeous red, which, when finally extended, has a wingspan of 16 inches. Even so, the most majestic of the army moustaches is reported to measure 18 inches. Possibly some members of the division can boast comparable growths. If you will send us the dimensions, we should be pleased to publish them. Now, I've got, I've got problems with this. I think somebody has far too much time on their hands in the launder. Well, you being a hirsute gentleman, do you want to talk about moustaches? Well, I mean, this is it's a fight that still goes on in the British Army now. Because there's mm. a... The fashion at the minute, well, it's not a fashion, but there's is, is facial hair, beards. People would like the opportunity to wear beards. And the argument is always that in a chemical warfare environment or nuclear biological, you won't be able to put on your respirator and all that. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, which is sort of true. But then there's quite a long, lengthy process to get to the point where you're going to be fighting somebody that's going to use chemical weapons. So it yeah. seems a bit daft to me. Um, it's, it, a, the army has a sort of um, an up and a roller coaster sort of um, history with with facial hair. Mm. Uh, I think we we see the Victorians and they've always got a nice uh, set of mutton chops and beards and stuff yep. like that. And it was very fashionable, um, and it kind of went out of fashion. But the army uh, in the late Victorian time had, had actually brought it in as a mandatory for any um, junior ranks to wear a moustache. Now, the problem with that is when they got into the First World War, first and foremost, you, you did have a chemical environment, so they used the gas yep. in the trenches where it actually prevented um, a good seal around the face or it, it was actually more dangerous in a chemical environment. But also mm. 250,000 
boys under the age of 18 who joined up couldn't grow moustaches. So it kind of... Really? It, it, it meant that actually the, the mandatory wearing moustache was a bit nonsense. They were too but, young. They were too young. Yeah, that's it. But So they rolled out in, in October 1916, they amended King's regulations and they said, right, that's it. You don't no longer have to have a moustache. And the decree was signed by Major General uh, Neville McCreary. Uh, he hated moustaches personally, so that might have been one of the reasons. And he made an example of marching down to the Lear's Barbers on the day that the uh, the, the King's Regs was, was approved mm. and had his moustache ceremonially shaved off. Really? Um, incidentally, um, yeah. some people say that the, the, the retreat uh, from and surrender of Singapore um, was actually down to uh, General Sir Arthur per- Percival's poor moustache. He saw that that was a, a kind of a, a sign that he was actually a little bit weak-willed. Well, you say you say that, but the French wore their moustaches, plural, um, in the 18th century as a sign of strength and virility. So yes. If he had a, yes. If he had a very weak moustache, that tends to, to, to lend to the theory, doesn't it? Well, of course, and some people in the division, the 52nd Lowland Division, Second War, had fantastic moustaches. Um, Major General Edmund Hakewell Smith, of course, is the general yep. officer commanding, the, the commander of the 52nd, had a lovely moustache. Uh, but is it, there's an interesting note, and I wonder if um, I wonder if this chap ever ever read the Lowlander. Uh, in Peter White's description of his battle across Northwest Europe with the jocks, he describes his driver, which drives him all the way across the oh, yes. called Walrus yes. Whiskers. Because he has yeah. this amazing sort of first world warrior moustache, so I yeah. wonder if he ever read the Lowlander and then submitted his own dimensions because it was <laughs> it was enough for Peter to to, to uh, make a note of him. <laughs> a word about whiskers, indeed. with Caribbean cruises in the winter? Are you fed up with Kenyan safaris in the spring? Feel jaded by the offer of Disneyland with the kids, her wife and her sister? Frustrated by constant flying to St. Lucia for highballs and the high life? Then what you need is a battlefield tour. For the price of only 15,995 cups of badly brewed coffee, you too could be walking with the jocks. And if you book in the next 24 hours, You'll qualify for a limited edition sport. Three prongs, stainless steel, shaped and honed to accompany every man's entrenching tool. Book today. Don't delay. Don't just book it. Battlefield tour it. Offer does not include entrance to entrenching tool museum, entrenching tool fridge magnets, entrenching postcards, entrenching tool substitutes, entrance to entrenching tool land, the premiere of entrenching tool the film, or entrenching tool online webinars. Please check full terms and conditions at walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. That's walkingwiththejocks.co.uk Twenty third of February nineteen forty five. Greatest air assault of the war. Yesterday afternoon, over six thousand Allied aircraft were over Germany. This assault, the biggest coordinated attack on Germany so far, was carried out by no less than seven separate commands and planes based in Britain, the Low Countries, France and Italy. The targets were all rail, road and water communications in an area stretching from Austria to Denmark 
and as far east as Lübeck Bay and Leipzig. Special attention was given to Germany's secondary rail system, a significant move after the virtual destruction of the main system during the past few months. The main weight of the attack was borne by the US 8th Air Force, which sent 1,400 fortresses and liberators with an escort of 800 fighters. These attacked 24 targets in central Germany, on which they dropped 14,500-pound bombs. All of these mighty attacks followed up 1,100 RAF heavies, which, on Wednesday night, attacked Worms and Duisburg. Berlin was twice visited, and Bremen was also attacked. That's a hell of a lot uh, coming together, isn't it? I know virtually nothing about the bomber campaign, but that sounds like a lot of planes and a lot of bombs. Well, this, this is this is why I wanted to read it, because when you actually pick that to pieces again, it goes six thousand aircraft and we, we, we're sort of quite mm. used to saying it's not just the air crews think about all the services and all the organization that has to go six thousand aircraft yeah it's the, the the scope of that rate is phenomenal and it's and, just phenomenal and although there's i say there's uh, you know there's 1100 raf heavy so that's lancasters they carry a significantly larger load than the fortresses and the liberators as well so even though there's less planes uh, the actual bomb loads are significantly bigger so it's i mean it's just it's i mean it's like we've we've traveled in germany quite a bit and and you go yeah. to these german towns and they are all new towns yeah. they're all they're all buildings that were built in the 50s 60s and 70s because there is nothing there was left. nothing left um, yeah yeah so it's and you can actually it's amazing you can still see the evidence of that today so yeah. Yeah. I, I just i in all the articles we've picked out i can't think of one that focuses on the rf quite so so heavily in terms of just summing up what a hell of a campaign it was yeah Twenty fourth of february 1944 death of dorio German radio has announced that Jacques Doriot, the notorious French traitor and collaborator, has been killed during an air raid in southern Germany. He raised the French Legion to fight the Russians. Mm, tell me about Doriot. Uh, well, he's a Frenchman. <laughs> he, was yes. he was a notorious collaborator. Uh, uh, and in fact, if you go in the newspaper records of the time, they call him a Quisling, of course, after the, the Norwegian uh, leader, mm. uh, Quisling. Um, he started off, I mean, he, he fought against the Germans in the First World War. He was captured, uh, taken prisoner then. He was awarded the Croix de Guerre, so, you know, loyal Frenchman and all yeah, that. Yeah. And then he sort of got interested in sort of extremist politics. He became a socialist and communist. Uh, and then sort of, in typically French way, <laughs> fell out with all of them. And slowly mm. drifted to the right and actually became uh, a fascist. Uh, however, he was called up again at the start of the war in 1939 and fought in 1940, fought when the Germans invaded. But then once the Germans invaded, he realised that he quite liked what the Germans were doing and became a very, very popular French politician who was very pro-collaboration. I mean, he was oh, fully yeah, signed yeah. up to the German uh, the German cause. In fact, there's photos of him which will pop in the... Um, will pop on Twitter. There's actual photos of him with German uniform. Now, he raised... He loved him so much, he raised um, the French volunteers, the, the Les yep. Légion de Volitaire Français, um, and they attached themselves to the Wehrmacht, and they fought on the Eastern Front. Okay, so so this is this is the guy who did the Judean People's Front trick, didn't he? He, he founded the um, Parti Populaire Français, yep. and then... He changed and 
joined or no hang on a sec he either joined or became an opponent of the popular but, oh, no it was oh. <laughs> right can i say something that yes. actually works when you're talking about french politics so you can leave that in <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think what you're trying to say is uh, French politics is very confusing. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, he ended up fighting in, in, in the Eastern Front. And then, like a lot of French people, he came back to France. And then after the Allied invasion in about August 44, he actually uh, left France and took up an enclave in, in, in Germany. And he, mm. he maintained his political role. He did a lot of propaganda, radio broadcasts. He was also instrumental in supporting... Um, anti-allied uh, um, sabotage in, in France and all okay. the rest of it. Yeah, he was actually killed on the 22nd of February, travelling uh, <laughs> travelling in southern Germany, um, and he was strafed by an allied fighter plane. So I think good riddance to, to, to bad rubbish, if you ask my Oh, my bless, opinion. bless. No, I'm starting to feel sorry for him now. Uh, oh, dear, I can't say no, that. No, you can't, can you? <laughs> <laughs> the Lowlander would like to apologise for Andy and Merrin's attempts at explaining French politics. 24th of February, 1945. Home news. One third of the entire city of London, an area of 464 acres, was destroyed by enemy action during the Blitz. A demonstration of television, the first since 1939, is to be given shortly to delegates attending the Commonwealth Conference on Broadcasting to be held in London. So, despite the war going on... <laughs> They've decided to have a Commonwealth Conference of Broadcasting. I'm assuming they're no. not having it in the 464 acres of London that weren't no, there. One anymore. would hope not. One would hope not. Late news. Two thirds of Goch have now been cleared. The enemy commander was captured while still in bed, and the total number of prisoners so far taken by General Carrar's offensive exceeds 9,000. Now that's coming at the end of the day, hasn't it? Yes. <laughs> the, the, the editor of the Lowlanders started typing on the first page, and then by the end of the day, they've had an update. This is um, great. Which great. great. And, and actually, what's interesting is Gok has been reported quite closely back home if you look at yeah. some of the newspapers. So the, 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 in terms of security, it's, it's not so much of an issue. And of course, if he'd waited just a few more hours later to the 21st of uh, February, he would have known that uh, Gok had actually been captured finally um, by the 51st Highland, uh, the 53rd Welsh, and the 15th Scottish. Superb. And finally, we go to this week's thought for the day from the 19th of February, 1945. War is our business. Homer. And that's not Homer Simpson. Oh, that was my next question. <laughs> so do you know your Iliad? I do. I am aware of Homer. <laughs> okay, and the Odyssey. Right. I've read the Odyssey. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. So this this um this is from book twenty two. This is Homer's account of Hector's last battle, mm -hmm. and it's it comes from his soliloquy before the Sea and Gate as he weighs up the possibilities of parley or combat with Achilles. Mm -hmm. Hector's running away towards the walls, and his um he's doing that so that his friends can maybe help him. Yeah. While Achilles is turning from the city towards the plain. And as he turns, he makes a sign to the Greek troops not to intervene because he wants to insist on single combat. Yeah. And as, as always with these things, the thought for the day makes a lot more sense when you, when you actually put it into context. So it reads, it reads. 
We greet not here as man conversing man met at an oak or journeying o'er a plain. No season now for calm familiar talk like youths and maidens in an evening walk. War is our business, but to whom is given to die or triumph, that determines heaven. Well, um, no. what are they trying to say to the jocks of the Lowlander, though? Tommy McGatkins, he said, war is our business. I'm sure he's thinking, oh, right, mate, yeah, nice one. I think that is exactly what they're trying to communicate. War is our business. I, yeah. don't, think that, I don't think the jocks need to worry about Hector and, and yeah. Achilles and, and, I, I think and a lot Homer them, thought at all. I think a lot of them would rather it wasn't their business, but yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. I understood this one this week. <laughs> the, the alternative was Linklater, mm-hmm. um, who was, um, he, well, he, he was a little bit more to the point. He said, pausing while I go and find it, there's always some who stay in bed too long thinking about their good intentions. And I do wonder if that was actually probably more pertinent for the jocks at this point. In the yes, year. I think so. I think so. Well, I think we should probably call it a day now, shouldn't we? I think we should. I think that's more than enough for, for this week. It's been a long one. It has. It has. Well, I'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. And now we go to the classified football results for the week commencing the 19th of February 1945. English League North Cup. Aberamum 2, Swansea 8. Barnsley 5, Hull City 0. Bath City 1, Lovells 3. Birmingham 1, West Bromwich Albion 1. Blackburn 3, Accrington 0. Blackpool 4, Rochdale 0. Bradford City 3, York City 0. Bristol City 1, Cardiff 0. Burnley 1, Preston North End 1. Bury 5, Man United 1. Chesterfield 3, Mansfield 0. Coventry 3, Northampton 0. Crewe 4, Chester 0. Darlington 2, Newcastle 3. Derby County 3, Leicester 0. Doncaster 3, Sheffield United 2 Gateshead 1, Middlesbrough 2 Hartlepool 3, Sunderland 1 Leeds United 0, Bradford 2 Liverpool 1, Bolton 1 Man City 2, Huddersfield 0 Notts County 1, Nottingham Forest 2 Oldham 1, Halifax 2 Portville 2, Stoke City 6 Rotherham 3, Grimsby 0. Sheffield Wednesday 1, Lincoln 3. Southport 3, Everton 5. Tramier Rovers 4, Stockport 0. Walsall 0, Aston Villa 2. Wrexham 1, Wolves 1. English League Cup South. Arsenal 3, Reading 0. Brighton 2, Brentford 4. Chelsea 4, Luton 1. Crystal Palace 3, Southampton 3. Millwall 1, Fulham 0. 
Portsmouth 4, Clapton Orient 1, Queen's Park Rangers 1, Spurs 0, Watford 2, Charlton 6, West Ham 4, Aldershot 0. Other matches Norwich City 4, Royal Navy 11 1, Oxford University 3, Cambridge University 3, Western Command 2, Northern Command 0. Scottish League South Airdrieonians 1, Hamilton 3, Clyde 0, Celtic 0, Falkirk 2, Partick 1, Hearts 2, St Mirren 0, Morton 0, Queen's Park 2, Motherwell 2, Dumbarton 1, Rangers 2, Albion 1, Third Larnack 2, Hibs 1, Scottish North East League, Arbro 5, Falkirk 0, Dundee 5, Hearts 1, Dunfermline 1, Aberdeen 4, East 5 2, Rangers 1, Wraith 5, Dundee United 2. Other sports Cambridge University defeated Oxford by two lengths in the boat race. This concludes the classified football results for the week commencing 19th of February 1945. Germans off. They were hideous good.